Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Why would we have an adoption Sunday? Why would we do such a thing? We, we might be inclined to say that, well, James 1.27 says that religion is, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so we might say, well, we do this because we're commanded to care for orphans. But there are a lot of commands in the Bible. Why don't we have a sexual purity Sunday? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Why is there no humility Sunday? Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There's no contentment Sunday. There's no self-control Sunday. Why adoption Sunday? Songs that we've sung this morning help us to answer that question. We don't celebrate and emphasize adoption just because we are commanded to care for orphans. We do this because adoption is part of our identity as believers in Jesus Christ. We pause around this time every year to meditate on the adoptive heart of God who not only redeemed us from our sin through Christ, but also made us his own children. So much of our identity as believers is caught up in our new relationship with God. Children of the Father, brothers and sisters of Christ, that this command to care for orphans is not just a command to do a good deed, but it's a command to relive and to retell the gospel by emulating the saving work of God in Christ. On Orphan Sunday, we, we celebrate our own adoption into the family of God and our opportunity to display His glory to the world by caring for orphans as He does. So this morning, we take as our our text, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I'd invite you to stand with me as we read those verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. We'll read those verses and then pray for the Lord's help this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, in the beloved. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for an occasion this morning to 
relive the gospel in a sense, to, to meditate on it together, to consider and, and grow in affection for this truth that you have not only saved us, you've not only given us life, but you have given us a new, a new identity, which is your children. We are children of God Most High, bought by the blood of our brother, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that as we see these things in Scripture this morning, things that we hold dear, as we remember them, as we are brought to a place of awe once again, that we would also be moved, Father, to be like you. Please give us hearts that want to rescue the helpless and bring them to know you. We pray for your help this morning. We ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. This passage begins with the longest sentence in the Bible. Our English translations chop it up, but the original text has one sentence that spans from verse 3 through verse 14. And the main idea of that longest sentence in the Bible is that first clause of verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed just means worthy of praise. God is worthy of praise. This God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we might think of the rest of this long sentence as a delineation of those spiritual blessings. Now, as, as Paul begins, verse 3, declaring the praiseworthiness of God, he is not just giving us a theological fact. It is not only his intent to teach us that God is worthy of praise, but implied is that we should do that very thing. We should praise God as we Think through these things in this text. And so with each of these blessings related to us this morning, we are intended to be moved to worship the Lord. And so each of the points in your notes this morning will call you to do just that. We're going to see three reasons to praise the Lord. The first is this. Praise God, He blessed us. Praise God, He blessed us. Let's look at all of verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look first of all at how Paul identifies God. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is in a sense... And only Son is the eternal Son, and He has always been the Son of the Father. Now, Paul is not shy in other texts about referring to God as our Father, but here he identifies Him as the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe there's purpose in that, which we'll attend to later. But Paul also identifies God here as the one who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Some of those spiritual blessings are outlined for us in this passage. Election, predestination, adoption, redemption, wisdom and insight, union with Christ, sealing with the Holy Spirit, a heavenly inheritance waiting for us. 
We could certainly think of other blessings that come to us from God in Christ. Just a quick reading of the last few chapters of Revelation show that the presence of God himself is the ultimate blessing that we look forward to for all eternity. Freedom not only from the penalty and power of sin, but also from the very presence of sin. Freedom from pain, freedom from sickness, freedom from sorrow. All of these are things that God has given us in Christ. When I, when I was a little boy, my church used to have a potluck every Thanksgiving. It was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and our church was not big enough to hold all the food. We rented the Civic Center in Abilene, Texas, and it was just row after row after row of food. It was an absolute smorgasbord. And I, I, I do believe that in Texas, perhaps the only thing that rivals the thought of an eternity in hell is the thought of running out of food at a potluck. So I, that never happened. And I never heard my parents, my parents never said this to me. I never heard any parents say to any children, look, you got it. You got to go easy because we got to make sure that there's enough for everybody. The, the, the thought that there wouldn't be was an absolute absurdity. And so we would go, we would just eat and eat and eat. And, and this place was enormous. We could run with our friends. It was a wonderful time. I loved that potluck. When I think of Paul's first long sentence here, Give it as something like a glorious spiritual version of, of that potluck. This sentence, it just goes on and on and on. Th think about the fact that Paul says, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single one. You don't have to pace yourself. You don't have to choose just one so that everybody gets something. We all get them all and they never run out. We get them all in infinite measure. And they're ours for all eternity. Joy in infinite measure. And love in infinite measure. Peace in infinite measure. Godly fellowship in infinite measure. Acceptance in infinite measure. God in Christ in infinite measure. And all these things are ours because God has given us Jesus, they, they, they are a package deal with the Lord Jesus, who is ours. Now, recall who is the one giving these things to us, according to the Paul. He's someone else's father. He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These, these blessings are fantastic, and it is, it is a good practice to meditate on these things, but it is easy for us with our fallen human hearts to think that we are entitled to such things. In our, in our culture, we make a big deal about the concept of rights. I have a right to liberty. I, I am entitled to pursue happiness. I have a right to say whatever I want to say. I have a right to gather with other people publicly. Now I even have a right to health care. The Bible would teach me that ultimately I'm entitled to one thing, only one thing, and it is not pleasant. And when I remember that, when I meditate on that, well, then these blessings that come to me from God and Christ, they seem all the more unbelievable. We are entitled, by virtue of our birth into this sinful world, we are entitled to one thing. We are, we are born spiritual Orphans, estranged from God, 
dead in our trespasses and sins, because of our rebellious hearts and actions, God's rightful disposition toward us is that of a wrathful judge. This wrathful judge is a good God. He is infinitely holy. And for that reason, even one sin committed against him is infinitely offensive. Because we, we have all strayed and sinned against God. We are worthy of an infinite punishment. Yes, in our rebellious estrangement from God, the only thing that we are entitled to in infinite measure is omnipotent wrath. That's what I have a right to. But God, because God is a just God, he has made provision for the delivery of that wrath in the form of eternal judgment in hell. And just as we can delineate some of the blessings in the heavenly places, we can also delineate some of the horrors of eternal wrath. We'll give you just a few of these. They're, they're not in your notes. Hell is absolute darkness, so says Jesus in Matthew 8.12 and, and elsewhere. Outer darkness. He says that it is a place of sorrow and weeping. There are six references to that in Matthew alone. It's a place, place of weeping. You ever heard somebody who is grieving say, I've, I've just cried so much, I, I, I can't cry anymore. Anybody ever heard that? Not so in hell. Not so in hell. It is a place characterized by eternal weeping. That's our rightful inheritance. It's what we are entitled to. It's a place of gnashing of teeth. To, to gnash one's teeth is to grind one's teeth. We, we, we tend to grind our teeth for a couple of reasons. First of all, we do it because of intense anger. And there are numerous times in the scriptures where gnashing of teeth is associated with anger. One example is in Acts chapter 7 where the Jews become so mad at Stephen and his audacity to, to indict them that they gnash their teeth before stoning him to death. What might we be angry about in hell? Perhaps anger at God. Maybe anger at others whom we blame for our being there. Possibly anger at ourselves, but I doubt it. See, we, we, we tend to think that, that when we go to hell, we all automatically have this heart that's changed toward God and others and ourselves. When you go to hell, you don't get a regenerate heart. You've still got that sinful heart that thinks wrongly about everything. And so it would be very natural for people in hell to be angry at God angry at others, blaming other people, completely removed from repentance and godly remorse. That gnashing of teeth likely is great anger at others. Gnashing of teeth is also associated with great pain. Most likely, each of us has, has at some point in our lives experienced some kind of physical pain that was great enough that we oh, ground our teeth. The pain in hell likely coming from, from at least a couple of sources. Jesus says that in hell, it's a place where the flame never dies and the worm never dies. Eternal burning and eternally being consumed. Some scholars, even conservative evangelical scholars, would suggest that all of these things that I've mentioned, that they're, they're just metaphors. And I, I wouldn't 
argue strongly against that. All I would say is that if they are metaphors, they ought not, that, that fact ought not comfort us. It should actually terrify us because why would they use metaphors? Scriptures would use metaphors because these things represent other things for which there is no comparison in the human experience. Revelation depicts hell as a lake of fire and says of those who are sent there that their smoke, the smoke of their torment goes up forever. So it's a place of, of absolute eternal torment. Have any of you ever been tormented? Torment can come from physical pain, but it more typically refers to mental anguish. In, in hell, there's tremendous mental anguish. Again, in, in, in hell, everybody still has their, their unregenerate hearts, and so they are overcome with temptations that can never be fulfilled. So, in, in, infinite temptation, no, no, no relief. Fear in infinite measure, loneliness in infinite measure, sorrow in infinite measure. And worst of all, it takes place in the absence of the loving presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the most glorious being in existence. In our estrangement from God, our, our, our spiritual orphanhood, that was our inheritance. That is what we are entitled to. But we have received polar opposite from someone else's father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God he did not give us what we deserved. Praise God. Almighty God does not give us what we are entitled to. Instead, he blessed us. And he did so in Jesus Christ. Praise God. He blessed us. Second, praise God. He chose us. He chose us. Verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Those first couple of words there, even as the they simply signal that Paul is now elaborating on those blessings, those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. God has blessed us, first of all, in that he chose us. You understand that if God had not chosen to save some, none would be saved? We know this because of what the Bible teaches about our natural state outside of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following after the world and the flesh and the devil, enslaved in a sense, but, but it was a delightful slavery, as we've noted many times here together. Delightful slavery. We loved sin. We loved worldly ways. We loved to rebel against God. And Paul chooses that word dead very carefully. Deadness speaks of inability. You know, we, we could no more move ourselves to follow Christ than could Lazarus decide to walk out of the tomb in John 11. Just as Lazarus had to be acted upon by the power of the Lord Jesus, so also the sinner dead in sin must be acted upon by God. This necessitates God choosing to do that. That's precisely what Paul teaches here that God does. God chooses some. And this election is a blessing also that comes to us in Christ. Just as he chose us in him. He chose us in Christ. We'll talk more shortly about how these things come to us in Christ. 
But when did the Lord choose us? When did the Father choose us? Text says, before the foundation of the world. Turn with me over to Genesis 1.1, if you would, please. Genesis 1.1. I know that many of you don't need to see it, but I want you to look at it anyway. Very briefly. As you know, Genesis 1 records God speaking the world into existence over the course of six days. And many of you have Genesis 1.1 committed to memory. I would like for us to look at it together. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that happened a long time ago. Long time ago. If you are in Christ, when did God choose you to be in Christ? Pre-Genesis 1.1. Before the foundation of the world. It was set in stone in the mind of God. Back then. That you would be his before time. You who deserve only wrath. God chose to save. Before he even said. Let there be light. Scriptures deny us any reason. To take any kind of of, of pride. In this, or to make much of ourselves, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Ephesians chapter 2, Romans chapter 9, all of them would tell us that God chose you due to nothing in you. There was nothing in you that moved God to select you, to snatch you out of the abyss, and make you his. Rather, we find in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells the Israelites that there was nothing special about you compared to anyone else. I chose you because I loved you. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul teaches explicitly that God has done it this way so that there is no room for pride and all praise goes to God. Now, while we should feel no pride in this, there is all the reason in the world absolutely to feel loved. Because this is the best kind of love, unconditional. We should feel a sense of security in this, like nothing that this world has to offer. God Almighty, for reasons known only to him, has freely and graciously set his love on us and chosen to save us. So there should be no pride, but there should be what Paul is calling us to here, which is worship. To what end? Did he choose us? He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him, the text says. Now, this forecasts Paul's teaching for the next three chapters. God does everything necessary in Christ to take sinners who hated him and one another and transform them into saints who love him and one another. He makes us holy and blameless. And this explains how God is able to give us blessings instead of curses, as we've already noted. We've noted that he does that. How is he able to do that? We deserve infinite wrath, but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ gives us blessings. How is that possible? How can God be a just God and at the same time show us mercy? Well, he takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ displayed in his life on this earth and he imputes it to those he has chosen. As he credits it to their account. So he, he, he takes our sin and does the reverse. He takes our sin and credits it to Christ's account, puts it on his shoulders on the cross, 
and then pours out his wrath on Jesus instead of on us. So, our sin is punished in Christ, and we wear his righteousness before God, so that on judgment day, we are declared holy and blameless, and we receive the blessings of Christ's perfect obedience. But God not only imputes righteousness to us, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he also progressively transforms us into the image of Christ in our character and conduct. It actually makes us like Jesus. But God, God not only said from eternity past then, I'm going to save you, but he said, I'm going to cause you to stand holy and blameless for eternity because of the gracious work of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Praise God. He blessed us. Praise God. He chose us. And third, praise God. He adopted us. He adopted us. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In love. We've talked about this, this unconditional love that God has for us, due to nothing in us, but, but only due to what is in Him. Because of that, He predestined us to adoption. He, he determined beforehand that we would be His children. Adoption is a, is a formal and legal declaration that someone who is not one's own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. And this is exactly what God does when he adopts us. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of the work of Jesus Christ, has become our God and Father. Do you recall the end of chapter, or at the, at the end of John, the risen Christ, who has been calling his disciples first servants, and then he calls them his friends. The risen Christ calls them his brothers. His brothers. We become the children of the Father. We're, we're treated and cared for as his own. We, we enjoy the, her- the inheritance that belongs only to Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, Paul calls us fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus deserves all the blessings in the heavenly places. He, he alone deserves them. But because of our adoption, he shares them with us in infinite measure. He shares them with us, his blood-bought brothers and sisters. And, and we then have full privileges and inheritance of sons and daughters. The ESV leaves untranslated a little phrase in verse 5, to himself. He predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself. He, he, he predestined us for adoption to be his. You, you see, the, our adoption by God was not only a, a legal change in our status or identity, but it, but it was God claiming us for him, for himself, gathering many sons and daughters that they might know him intimately. See, there, there was a depth of relationship that God desired with us that could not be captured by only a declaration of our innocence in Christ. No, this, this glorious God, he moves, he moves beyond that 
He, he not only takes away his wrath from us due to our sin, not only gives us blessings in the place of curses, but he gives us himself. And not as a, as a distant but benevolent authority, but as a loving father. We, we were doomed to utter solitude and suffering for all eternity, but now we have an eternal father and a blessed brother with whom we will spend forever. Our, our adoption should mean all the more to us because of how it was secured. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, there's, there's so much loaded in that phrase, through Jesus Christ. And we can talk about all the theological content of it, and we have to some degree this morning. But consider what it means in terms of the great personal cost borne by God. That phrase, through Jesus Christ. What does that phrase mean to a father who gave that son? Paul has identified God as the, as the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And elsewhere, the scriptures identify Jesus as God's only son. They have eternally enjoyed a unique, loving, perfect bond. What enemy do you have? What enemy do you have? in whose place you would give your child to suffer omnipotent wrath. We all love our children, right? But we cannot plumb the depths of the love that exists between the father and the son. The father loves the son with eternal intensity, so deep and broad and wide, that it seems wrong to even use the same word for it that we used to describe our affection for our children. We can't know the kind of love that the Father had for the Son. Suffice to say that as extraordinary as it would be for one of us to sacrifice a child for an enemy, that act could not compare to the magnitude of the Father giving the spotless, eternal Son of glory to ransom sinners to Himself. In Christ, the Father gave everything. He gave everything for us. This is love unfathomable. And the following phrase takes it to a, a, an even higher level, according to the purpose of his will. I prefer other translations here. Better is in keeping with the good pleasure of his will. In keeping with the good pleasure of his will. When I, when I, when I read this, I think of Isaiah chapter 53 where the prophet said that God was pleased to crush his servant. He was pleased to crush the son. It pleased him to do this, that he might bring many sons to glory. Our, 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 adoption, our, our adoption is not a begrudging act that God did through gritted teeth. He was pleased to do it. Zephaniah tells us that this God rejoices over us with gladness. This is a God who exults over us with loud singing. God sings over us, his children. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. There is there's something like a refrain running through this, this passage this long sentence, and the first time we see it is in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. 
to the praise of his glorious grace. Comes up again in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. In verse 6, look at verse 6 again. Blessed is the verb form of grace. And so what we have here is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has graced us in the beloved that is in Christ. If we, if we were to go over to chapter 2, we'd find the same idea. All that God has done for us in Christ is ultimately to lead us to magnify his grace, to demonstrate his great grace and to lead us to worship him which points us back to that very first clause that we read this morning, which is, blessed be God, or praiseworthy is God. Now, how, how do we adequately praise God and, and celebrate His grace? How do we do this? Well, we can never adequately do so, but we can spread the praise of His glory by speaking the gospel of grace and living the gospel of grace in various ways. You can live that gospel in various ways. And one way that we live it comes from James 1.27, which calls us to care for orphans. We emulate the adoptive heart of our Father by following Him in that same work. Why, why does God want to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ? Why is this? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians, it's to show himself. It's essentially what we're saying when we say God wants to glorify himself. He wants to show everyone who he is. Ephesians 3.10 says it this way. So that, he wants to transform us, so that through the church, through what we've become in Christ, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And what, one thing that God wants all beings to know about himself is that he has a heart for the orphan. And we've all experienced this. All of us who are in Christ have been adopted as his children. He has a heart for the orphan. And it is for that reason that he calls us to follow him, to emulate him in his love for the orphan. When a, when a husband and wife take an orphan to be their own, declaring to God and the world, we, we formally and legally declare that this child who is not ours biologically will from this day forward be treated and cared for as our own including complete rights of inheritance. This child will have our name. This child will have our love for life. When they do that, they show a glimpse of the gospel of grace. This is just what God has done for those estranged from him. And, and just as God took us to be his own at great personal cost, so also families that adopt children do so at great personal cost. And I'm not just talking about the financial cost, which is substantial, as you know. In a sense, it, 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 it turns your life upside down. And you can ask any of our adoptive families. These, these kids whom the parents want so badly, these, parents, these kids bring with them a host of traumas. So when, when the clays gave Elijah their name, 
and their love, they simultaneously took his trauma to be theirs. It's going to be mine now. Just like in the atonement. See, Jesus doesn't just give us his inheritance. He takes our pain and our suffering, our sin, our wrath. He takes all that, makes it his own. Adoptive parents do that. Ask, ask the Robsons who, who gave their hearts to a host of foster kids on their way to, to adopting their two children. I mean, they, they put themselves out there for months on end as, as they're waiting to know, will Dee really be ours? Will Ronnie really be ours? There's the legal possibility right up to the very last minute before those adoptions that something could happen and those kids would go somewhere else. And the Robsons knew that. And in a sense, it was their pleasure. It was their pleasure, just like the Father. It was their pleasure to rend their hearts over and over for the opportunity to love those children as the Father has loved them. Some of you know that, that Jason and Tabitha Odell got a phone call on Thursday about a possible match. And so they, they packed their bags very quickly and went to the hospital. Now, this was just days, days after they met their fundraising goal due in no small part to your generosity. This was perfect timing. And they, they ran to the hospital where there was a baby boy waiting there whose biological mother was eager to sign her rights over to them and, and allow them to raise him. And in a matter of hours, perhaps minutes, they just fell in love with this boy. They've got a face attached to this this impulse to love for the last few years. Months, year, years building up to this. And at the proverbial last minute, a biological family member showed up and contested the whole thing. And just like that, that, that child to whom their hearts had already been knit, but he, he's not going to be theirs. And they are heartbroken. We're heartbroken with them. I heard from Jason yesterday as he was asking for prayer, but he asked for prayer for that young boy. Because now Jason and Tabitha, yes, they're hurting because they, they wanted to have him, but now their concern is that he's going to live in a home where he will not hear about Jesus every day. You know, th th there's, a, there's a world, there's a world of joy in this process of adoption. But there's more than enough pain and trauma and disappointment and tears. But we keep having people do this. We keep having people do this. Why? Why, why would they do this? Because we are children of adoption. This is our story. We have known grace. And we love grace. And His Spirit inside us moves us to be like Him to rescue orphans at great personal cost. Ask these families. Ask the Clays. Ask the Robsons, the Odells, the Joneses, the Watsons. Ask any of them. Is this, is this easy, this thing that you're doing? No. Ask them, is it worth it? Yes, yes, yes. E each of them have been forced to rely upon the Lord in numerous situations. And he has not failed to show himself strong. 
they've been they've been blessed in ways that they would not have otherwise. They have been a blessing in ways that they would not have otherwise, and they know more of Jesus than they would otherwise. A million times over, yes, it is worth it. Now the Lord may be working in the hearts of some here. Hope, hopefully, all of us. We, we've we've been moved to worship. Worship this God of grace because of the love that he has displayed for us in adopting us. May God move us all, all to join him in caring for orphans. Almost all of us have had a part in the adoptions already represented here at Providence. We've raised money. We've provided meals. We've, we've watched the kids. We've prayed and a host of other things. The work is not over because there are still orphans. It may be that some this morning are being moved to become adoptive parents, but perhaps you're holding back for, for one reason or another. One thing typically is, I just don't know where that money is going to come from. It's a lot of money. We don't have money problems. We have never had money problems when it comes to adopting a child here at Providence. Come to the celebration tonight at 6 o'clock and hear about that. There are no money problems when it comes time to pay those adoptive fees. Now, you pray God, pray, pray to God for a Ferrari. You may be waiting a while. But pray and ask Him for money to display the gospel to an orphan, and you will not come up short. God owns everything, and He makes it rain money when the time is right. It rains money. You can ask in any of these people. Maybe you're afraid because of the pain and difficulty. So I haven't done a very good job of selling it, right? This is painful. Is your life not going to be painful otherwise? Are you not going to have difficulty if you don't adopt? Life is painful. Life is difficult no matter what. Just because we exist in a fallen world, you will not miss pain and difficulty. You cannot avoid it. So wouldn't you like for that road to be purposeful? If you're going to have difficulty, and you are, wouldn't you rather it come as a result of following Christ and something that he's calling you to do? He he promises to meet us there and to provide everything that we need. You will never regret following the Lord in something like this. You may regret not. I, I hope and have prayed that everyone will return tonight. Everyone will return tonight to celebrate what God has done through adoption, to hear from from our families, those who have adopted, some who are who are in the process, and and others who have it on the horizon, to hear a charge from our our brother Chris Straw. But come tonight and celebrate with us what God has done, what He is doing, what He's going to do, and how we can each join Him in this work. It's going to be a great time of celebration. But first, as we as we pause to to pray and and be silent and sing, let us do just what this passage calls us to do, which is praise God, praise God that he has adopted us. I'm going to pray and then we will pause for a moment of silence before singing a final song. Let's pray. Father, we have occasion to consider the gospel every Sunday here at this church. We're grateful for that. But when we consider this aspect of adoption, how you have gone beyond just redeeming us, but you have given us 
all the blessings in the heavenly places. You've given us your name. And you have given us the pleasure of calling you Father and Christ brother. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming when we think about these things. We pray, Father, that you would elevate our hearts in the knowledge of, of this truth and that we would be moved to worship you rightly because of your glorious grace. We pray also for a desire, a deep desire to follow you in these things, to be like you and caring for those who are helpless. But if there are those considering adoption this morning, would you please work in their hearts, give them wisdom. There are those among us hurting this morning, Jason and Tabitha Odell. Pray that you would minister peace to them. You would assure them that you have your eye on that little boy. You would grant them to remember the things that they know to be true about you. To cling to them with both hands. Pray that you would heal them, Lord, and prepare them to go right back in. Right back in. Allow us, all of us, everyone in this room to find ways to participate. Encouraging those who have adopted, helping them in whatever way we can, adopting into our own families, Lord. Please move us all to be like you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our brother. Amen.